This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week as determined by you. I am your host, Don Grant, joining me today in the co-host chair, host and creator of the TV Trivia Podcast, joining me all the way from Philly, Brian Sheehan. How you doing, Brian? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you here. How is winter in Philly so far? You know what? So far, it's been pretty mild. I'm actually a, a teacher who also coaches winter track. Only because they begged me to do it, I personally dread running uh, in the cold. Love to run, just hate doing it in the cold. But this has been a good winter for it so far. How do the kids feel about running in, in the middle of winter? You know what? I... <laughs> I, I guess fine. They signed up for it. You know, I don't know why they do it, but uh, they, you know, my, my district begged me to be the coach. So that's why I did it. If, if I was a student, there's no way I'm running in the cold voluntarily. Well, fun fact, I, I'm in Toronto and you are in Philly and we are actually not as far north latitude wise as you would think because uh, because Canada juts down pretty far into the United States. Uh, so we are actually, although we're not in the same latitude, we're actually closer than a lot of Americans would think. We talked about that in the very first episode of this show. Awesome. I, did, uh, I didn't know that. Hey, most Americans don't. They think that we're this sort of thing that's perched on top of the United States like a hat. I, I mean, I just somehow always associate Canada with uh, with cold, you know, but uh, I, I was recently in uh, Niagara Falls, too. And I guess you guys are just right across the uh, right across the river there. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. All right, let's hit it. Thing one. Thing number one. Betty White is awesome. Now, <laughs> that's not exactly, that's not a fact that anyone needs to be reminded of. Betty White is a national damn treasure and everybody knows it. However, what we're going to be talking about for this first thing is that Betty White was, in fact, an early, in her own small way, civil rights pioneer. She had her own show called The Betty White Show in 1954, and she had a tap dancer, a black tap dancer named Arthur Duncan, who's quite well known in tap circles, if you know anything about tap he's still with us he's 80 he's in his 80s by now mm -hmm. and she featured him on her show which just lasted one season and she was pressured to get rid of him because the show this was of course back in the early days before there were 2683 channels and so when this show was expanded into the south there were many people in the south who did not like the fact that she had a black man featured heavily on the show and so the network pressured her to not put him on more and she said, actually, I'm going to put him on even more. She said, quote, I'm sorry, live with it, gave him even more airtime, and the show was canceled soon after. Arthur, did you have a nice weekend? Sure did. The usual weekend. What's the usual weekend? Well, a benefit. Working. I did something a little different. I rehearsed with a choral group that's going to do Christmas carols this Christmas. Oh, wonderful. You're going around from house to house, or...? I think their plan is to go to hospitals and uh, orphanages and things of that nature. Well, that's a wonderful thing to do for, for a Christmas season, Arthur. Arthur's all set for his number today. This is a fine number for him to do when he was rehearsing Christmas carols all day yesterday. Arthur Duncan and Sing You Sinners. Amazing for Betty White. She's doing something with her voice. And again, tensions are 
still high racially as well. So that's really incredible. I always thought I was a bit of a hipster when it came to Betty White because I'm I'm pretty sure I'm of an older vintage than you are. I um, knew Betty White from the Mary Tyler Moore show. A lot of people know Betty White from the Golden Girls. Many people know Betty White from her, you know, late career resurgence as a beloved figure. But here I was thinking, oh, well, actually, I know her from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, my goodness. She I don't know if you know this. She is in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the longest entertainment career. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but I can I can. It makes sense because she's 99 this year. Yeah. In the 2014 edition of the Guinness Book of World Records, she was awarded the longest TV career for an entertainer, female, uh, for her more than 70 years and counting. Uh, in show business. Yeah. Uh, there's the, the year before Guinness gave the longest TV career for an entertainer in male to a British TV host named Bruce Forsyth. Uh, but uh, she has been around. They both began their careers in 1939 before World War II, which is insane. Betty White. I mean, uh, she has been on. I, I don't think I've seen anything maybe that she has been the star of in a really long time. But I know even in the past decade, uh, she was on a show that I liked a lot called Community. Right. And yeah. even then, upper 80s, low 90s. Like, and and she looks great. The, and it's not only the fact that she looked great, but she's still also so sharp, right? I mean, it was just a couple of years ago that there was a sort of a fan, a, a fan surge on Twitter to get her to host Saturday Night Live. And people said, we have to get Betty White to host Saturday Night Live. So in 2010, it was a Facebook group called Betty White to host SNL, please. And they gathered so many fans that Lauren Michaels made it happen. She was 88 years old. She set a, a record for the oldest host of Saturday Night Live. Her episode, I don't know if you saw it, was actually really, really good. A lot of the female alums of SNL returned. Uh, it won her an Emmy for that actual performance. And it was one of those things where you weren't watching it saying, oh, she's doing well for her age. She kicked ass. She blew the lid off that show and was unbelievably good. Man, I mean, uh, I'm looking at her IMDb credits right now. And, uh, you know, IMDb also rates specific episodes. Her episode has an 8.8, .8, which is High, yeah. really high. It's it's ranked the t number two top rated episode behind a recent Eddie Murphy one, which uh, it's rated even higher. But Betty White's episode comes at number two of all SNL episodes. You know what? I, I completely believe that. Um, I did actually not know that Betty White had her own variety show in the 1950s. It was called The Betty White Show. And she set a lot of tones early on by the fact that she was the female star of a show when that sort of thing didn't happen. She had female directors for the show, which was not done before. And then, of course, the fact that brings us into this entire thing in the first place is this uh, tap dancer, Arthur Duncan, who later credited her for his entire career career. He went on to be a very well-known tap dancer on the Lawrence Welk show, a long-running Lawrence Welk show. She, of course, courted controversy by putting Duncan on the show, repeatedly getting him in there. And when they told her not to, she just said, yeah, too bad. Southern viewers in the United States, they threatened to boycott the show. Boy, that's been going on for a while, hasn't it? Unless he was removed <laughs> because of uh, segregation laws. And she said, sorry, live with it. Uh, and of course, the show was canceled, but that was not the end of it. She went on, of course, as we now know, to become the legend that she is today. Do you know if the show was canceled because of this uh, backlash or was it just other reasons? Unofficially, no one knows the answer. If you 
if you take it from a number of people who seem to have been in the know at the time, uh, all of whom I know personally, obviously, because I'm saying it, um, uh, is uh, is that, yeah, that was one of the main reasons why. It's not like there were 87 other shows competing against her at this point, right? That was, you know, they were worried about the boycott because economic boycott on TV, which was still in its infancy, would have been considered to be quite the, quite the blow, the financial blow. It could have hurt her career. You know, here she is. She is not, you know, she's only in her, I guess, 30s at this point. And it could have easily taken her career down. And she just said, screw it. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible. And, you know, I think another fun fact to add to this interesting fact is that Betty White was once young. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Well, it's funny because I, I heartily recommend that listeners go. You can find clips of the Betty White show. In fact, I'm going to play one right now. It's the Betty White Show from Hollywood. This portion brought to you by RDX, the safe way to lose ugly fat, yet still eat what you want. And Geritol, America's number one tonic that helps you feel stronger fast. Now here's Betty White. It's time to say hello again And start our show again And sing a song or two for all of you. Hi. As you can hear, she actually had a beautiful singing voice. She could sing, and what she would also do is she would sort of, it was it was almost like a variety talk show. She would sing at the beginning of it. They would have Arthur Duncan, who would be doing this tap. They would have other people come on, and she would actually have chats with them. When she went on to be on Mary Tyler Moore, on the Mary Tyler Moore show in the 70s, that was quite the iconic role for her because she then, that was the first time she got to play this very kind of, uh, sexual, liberated, independent woman. So when she went on to be cast in The Golden Girls, it was it was quite a coup and a, and a brilliant thing for them to cast her as the naive, sweet Rose rather than the uh, sexually uh, promiscuous, worldly Blanche, which is, I think, the first character that she was considered for. As far as her be- the Betty White show, too, I mean, that opening with her just singing into the camera and, you know, the guests she has on just doing a little musical numbers. I feel like it's almost exactly what you might have pictured like old timey variety shows to be like. I, I don't know. I see these uh, reiterations, these uh, reincarnations when they're doing uh, modern TV and movies. And I'm like, uh, that, that seems a little cheesy, but... You know, like, this is kind of what it was like. She met her husband, her her late husband, Alan Ludden, who was a game show host, on a game show that he hosted, Password, that was a game show that he hosted in the, I think, 60s into the into the 70s. And she was a guest on the show and met him there, and that's how they got married, which is sort of a bit of a meet-cute. That's really cool. And I wanted to say something about Arthur Duncan here, too. I know that's what our uh, fact here also goes over, but yeah. how did you find... Arthur Duncan. I, I I am one who is not familiar with the tap dancing community. So, like, how how did you find this? Well, Arthur, the the this fact actually comes uh, by way of Betty White. At the same time, I had seen Arthur Duncan before. I have a bit of a background also in in theater and performance and that kind of a thing. He was also in a film. He was featured in a film called Tap that Gregory Hines made in the eighties, where what he did to sort of um, glorify tap dancing in that was to bring a lot of the very well-known tap dancers of 
this age and in history backed and featured them heavily in that. Arthur Duncan was in it. Sammy Davis was in it. The Nicholas Brothers were in it. So uh, he's he's someone who was known in the community, although outside of the community, as you would as you would guess, and as as you sort of illustrate, not terribly well known. But he credits Betty White for his entire career, pretty much, because of the fact that she said she gave the middle finger to the network. I still can't believe that Lawrence Welk had him as a regular on the show. You know, I, you know, I, I saw some of his tap dancing clips uh, on YouTube, and yeah, he is great. But to do that as a as a regular segment, you know, like uh, I feel like maybe after every day for a week, you might have seen all the moves. Well, the, Lor- <laughs> the funny thing about the Lawrence Welk show, you know, I I remember the Lawrence Welk show from when I was a, a kid, uh, just sort of being on in the background. I never really watched it but if you've ever seen it today it is such an interesting time capsule it's such an interesting look at television and how it functioned and what the general tone was in the late 60s early 70s he was apparently Lawrence Welk himself was a bit of a strict taskmaster he he knew exactly what he wanted he was the band leader but he was kind of like this sort of eastern european ed sullivan in that he he grabbed all these different people put them on the air uh and he also didn't seem to care too too much of course by this time, this is in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, racial strides had been made even more. And so it was less of a risk than Betty White was taking back in 1954. Betty White's amazing. You know, what? I, I wanted to say, too, uh, I also love that she was in another show, uh, which is one of my personal all-time favorites, Malcolm in the Middle. Yes. Uh, she's only on there for an episode, but still, uh, when I rewatched that and, you know, at that point, new actors and actresses' names when I was a little bit older, I was like, whoa, Betty White is in Malcolm in the Middle, too? Like, this is amazing. Well, it is it is wonderful to see that she is so appreciated, especially in an industry that is so notoriously sexist towards women over a certain age. The fact that she has gone on and is now known as this unbelievable icon. My, fa- my favorite Betty White quote is that she was asked, uh, what have you not done in the business that you've always wanted to do? And her answer was Robert Redford. (laughs) (laughs) Thing two. And for thing number two, we throw it to Brian. So uh, my fact is on James Bond, love James Bond, and it's on his movie Never Say Never Again. Uh, The movie is not James Bond canon, and the name is attributed by his wife uh, at the time. He did Diamonds Are Forever, which was his sixth James Bond movie, but number seven in the franchise. Yeah. And then he said he was, again, never going to play James Bond again. When uh, he expressed interest in it, uh, his wife said, well, never say never again. And that's the name they chose to run with for the movie. The, the rabbit hole of the rights issues that surround this film is just insane. Now, I am of an age where I actually saw this film in the theaters. And I remember it relatively well. I actually remember it more for the fact that Kim Basinger was in Playboy when this film came out. She was one of the first sort of celebrities who posed for Playboy to get publicity for a film when it was coming out. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast on its own. But um, the, the reason why you might say to yourself, why were they able to make a non-canon James Bond using the name James Bond in what is easily one of the top three or four most valuable franchises in the world, film franchises in the world. Do you know how they got away with this? All I know is that they went to court over for it. And uh, again, the producers won somehow, but it had to be like a remake of Thunderball. Yeah. So 
early on, here is Ian Fleming writing all these books, and the books are doing relatively well. By the time he gets to, I think it was his sixth or seventh book or something like that, all of a sudden people were saying, well, you know what? It seems like we should start to be making these into movies. And so in comes this man named Kevin McClory. Now, Kevin McClory, for those who are true Bond heads, which I do not count myself as a true Bond head, Kevin McClory is a bit of a villain because he was somebody who was kind of obsessed with James Bond, although it's a little bit, uh, it's it's not as black and white because he and Ian Fleming go and they write the screenplay for Thunderball, which doesn't get produced for a while. So Ian Fleming goes and writes the book. He writes this book, a James Bond book for Thunderball and uses the screenplay that he and McClory and another man named Jack Whittingham, they put this together. Here is Ian Fleming writing this book without permission of any of these people. Whittingham and McClory lose their minds. They sue Ian Fleming for the rights to this. It goes to court, and they must have had some pretty hardcore material on this lawsuit because at the end of the lawsuit, they win the rights to actually have their names in the book. They win the rights to the film uh, rights to this, although it was said that they he could not make a film of Thunderball until 10 years later. We'll get to that in a second. And if you if you look at the, the book now, the book says, you know, based on a film treatment by Kevin McClory. And, and so this is where all of the sort of weird, crazy rights issues of James Bond all spring from. I, I just couldn't believe that. You know, I, I thought... I thought, you know, Ian Fleming, you know, it's got to be him. But uh, somehow it makes sense then uh, that Kevin McClory here got some of the rights to at least redo it. It's just a shame that it had to be a, a remake of a, of a previous Bond movie. And this is one that I personally have never seen. Getting ready for Daniel Craig's fifth movie, No Time to Die, uh, when it was supposed to come out in 2020, April of 2020, I watched all 24 Bond movies, all canon ones anyway, the month before. Uh, so I skipped over Never Say Never Again, and I guess the spoof one as well, Casino Royale. Different than the Daniel Craig Casino Royale. Right. Now, have you seen Never Say Never Again since then or no? I have not yet. Uh, it's it's on my list. You know, I, I think I'd like to, but, you know, as, as of right now, as I understand, it's a pretty similar take on Thunderball. I just haven't felt like it's been as necessary. Yeah, it's an interesting film. It would be interesting for me to go back and watch it because I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater. And that was like about 8,000 years ago. But there there are a lot of people who actually quite like the film just by virtue of the fact that here you have Sean Connery climbing back into the role for the first time in I think it was seven or eight years, you know, putting back on this this character that he felt comfortable in like an old sweater. And the script itself in the film kind of leans in a little bit to the fact that Bond is aging and getting a little bit more mortal and that's that's kind of part of the vibe to it. So it it doesn't it, he's not as much of a superhero. He's a little bit more human. And and some people like that quite a bit. I, I can see that. You know, I, I, I was surprised that he decided to get back in the role because, you know, uh, he did the first five movies and then came George Lazenby, George Lazenby. Not quite sure how to say his last name for Honor Majesty. Lazenby. Most, yeah, Lazenby. Lazenby most people for say. Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And apparently they tried to sign him on for six movies. Uh, which would have made him one of the longest-running Bonds, but uh, I, he declined, and then came Sean Connery again in Diamonds Are Forever, and then Roger Moore in Live and Let Die. But I just found it interesting that they chose an older actor to replace Sean Connery after Diamonds Are Forever. Roger Moore is three years older than Sean Connery, and for a franchise 
where at this point, you know, uh, you want you want someone to stick with it for a couple movies, maybe up to 10 years. I feel like you want to lean younger so that way you have this longevity. I mean, I think even Roger Moore said by the time he did A View to a Kill, which I think was his last one, he even felt the relationship between him and the Bond girls just felt a little silly at that point. I, you know what? I've always wondered why George Lazenby said no to that. I'm sure if I looked it up, I'd probably find the answer. But he was actually a good Bond. Her Majesty's Secret Service is a, a very good Bond film. Yeah, I, I remember liking it. You know, I thought it was a, a cool way to do a mind control thing. We had a Blofeld in it again. What's it? Uh, Never Say Never Again was the last Bond movie to mention Spectre. So Bond movie 24 with Daniel Craig, the one actually called Spectre, you know, which right. I thought was an incredible uh, turnaround here. If you're not familiar, the original five, at least James Bond movies featuring Sean Connery, all mention Spectre. Well, and this comes back to Kevin McClory again, because Spectre was kind of his creation in the original film Thunderball. And this was yet another legal ramification of this was that when all of these lawsuits came out, one of the lawsuits that he went on to launch was the fact that he actually owned the rights to Spectre. So when they were making Never Say Never Again, you had better believe that Eon and MGM were watching over them like a hawk, making sure, like if you look at that film, there are a lot of things they could not use. They could not use, you know, the gun barrel opening. They could not use the theme. They couldn't use Dana. They could use the name James Bond, but they they had to stick with everything within Thunderball. But one of the things within Thunderball is Spectre, that sort of, you know, the evil organization against James Bond. And after that, McCrory went to court to say that he had come up with this and that they could not use it. And that wasn't resolved until relatively recently. And that's why all of a sudden you have Spectre coming back in these recent films. Just going back to George Lazenby for a second, you know that he was actually considered for the role in Never Say Never Again. Kevin McClory who was the executive producer of the film, obviously, he he's considered Lazenby to play James Bond. And then as soon as Sean Connery said yes to the role, he was like, okay, thanks, bye, sorry, George, we're moving on. <laughs> I did not yeah. know that. I mean, I, I, know, yeah. uh, I know so many people respected Sean Connery for the role back then, and I think it was either Never Say Never Again or Diamonds Are Forever that had the highest salary of any movie actor at the time when... Sean Connery returned for the role. By the way, did you know that McCrory went on to want to make the film again in 1996? Are you talking about another remake of the same movie? Yeah, he was going to make the same movie again because he had the rights to it and he wanted to milk this. This is why he's sort of a villain in the Bondverse. He he announced, he said, quote, I didn't want to make another Bond film, but now that I've come this far, I'm enjoying it immensely. The film will be called Warhead 2000. And an actor has been chosen to play Bond. By the way, the actor who had been chosen to play Bond was rumored to be Timothy Dalton, who, of course, did play Bond for a while. But we won't announce it yet to keep the competition in the dark. Unsurprisingly, this ended up in a courtroom. Sony, who was the studio at the time, sided with him. At the end of the day, MGM got their way. The Broccoli family, who were behind Eon and MGM, uh, had absolutely none of this. Uh, And McCrory was basically destroyed in this because what he did in that one was that he said, I have the rights to a certain percentage of all James Bond films because I created this cinematic character. I I mean, you could sort of see his thing, but at the same time, it seemed like he was trying to bite off more than he could chew. 
then we come up with this uh, Never Say Never Again. It comes out the same year as Octopussy with this whole headlines of Battle of the Bonds. And uh, again, Octopussy does do better, but it doesn't like destroy the competition. Uh, Never Say Never Again, I believe, came out four months later. Yeah, but yeah, as you say, it, it wasn't it wasn't a big like I think what didn't Octopussy do like 160 million? And I think Never Say Never did like 140 million. Like it wasn't too bad. They both did fairly well. Yeah, yeah. But as far as 96 goes, I mean, at that point, Pierce Brosnan is James Bond. Uh, GoldenEye is 95. Tomorrow Never Dies is 97. So 96 there was a year without Bond. I, he he might have been able to pull it off. Well, and the other interesting fact that I like about this is that Barbara Carrera, who is in this film, who she plays Fatima Blush, a typical Bond female character named Fatima Blush. <laughs> she was she was offered the role of Octopussy and turned it down so that she could be in this film because she wanted to work with Sean Connery so badly and she wanted to work with him so badly that she, they were they actually offered for her to have a, a body double and a stand-in for her love scenes with Sean Connery and she was like, "No, I will do them. I'm fine. I am going to do them." And I think Never <laughs> Say Never Again has one of the only uh it is the only movie where a bond girl has been nominated for an oscar really yeah yeah uh barbara carrera for best performance by an actress in a supporting role and no actress has ever not has ever been nominated for playing a bond girl at the oscars since wow that's actually that's an interesting yeah right do you know who the the martial arts instructor was on this film uh steven seagal right steven seagal steven seagal he broke sean connery's wrist when they were training Thing three. Thing number three, a 28,000 year old woolly mammoth is showing biological signs of life. Well, it's not, but its cells certainly are. This comes to us from All Things Interesting. There's a 28,000 year old woolly mammoth and it was dug into the Siberian permafrost 10 years ago. And now scientists have found that its DNA is at least partially intact. 28,000 years old and being able to test this, I, I guess there was something about inserting its DNA into an actual live cell. I think a mouse cell at first it said, and uh, the mouse cell at least being able to function semi-normally is an incredible breakthrough, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, this is this thing is going to test the limits of my scientific knowledge. So for those of you of a scientific bent who are listening, forgive me if I sound like a total moron. I am one, but I don't like to sound like one. But the, <laughs> the idea behind this is that cell activity can still happen and parts of it can still be recreated. It's not that we're getting into Jurassic Park. It's not that these things are frozen in amber and we're going to bring woolly mammoths back, although there is a certain number of scientists who are saying that that is possible. We'll get to that in a second. But the research, which is published in Scientific Reports, says that the cells began to show activity after, as you say, they were introduced with frog cell, frog DNA and that kind of a thing. Yeah, you know, uh, I found it interesting, the stuff I mentioned about uh, oocytes or, uh, you know, I think... Is that uh, how you say that? I Like, oocytes, I guess, that is that it? Oocytes? Because I saw... I saw that word too, and I was like, I don't want to say this one and sound like an idiot. So I'm, I'll I'll let you take the bullet on this one. I'll, we'll call it oocytes. That's uh, that's how I said it. That's how I've uh, taught it to some of my classes as well. I hope that's right. Usually we just call it the egg cell. You know? Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. That's that's a better way to do it. So the egg cell. <laughs> so the egg cell. Yeah. It, there's something in the cytoplasm of an egg cell that has just baffled scientists. You know, this is. This goes back to the cloning of Dolly the sheep here. Yeah. To clone that sheep, they used a skin cell, you know, again, a normal cell 
with DNA. It, nothing, it's not a reproductive cell or anything. It's a regular skin cell. And they removed the nucleus. They removed the nucleus of the uh, donor egg cell to get rid of that genetic material and put the skin cell nucleus into the donor egg cell, and we were able to create life from that. You know, usually in adult cells, we don't have that kind of specialization. Our skin cells can't become neurons, muscle cells, things like that. But once right. it entered that egg cell, it was able to become an entirely new organism. From that one skin cell, all the cells came to be again in this clone. Well, and this goes into the field, what they what they call the field of de-extinction, right? The idea of resurrection biology or bringing extinct species back to life. Now, this is, as you can imagine, an ethically dubious and questionable process that many people wonder about. It's funny, you know, we just finished off 2020 and a lot of people were like, don't, don't mess with anything else, please, God. Don't don't try to bring woolly mammoths back because this is a this is a Marvel film gone wrong. But there are scientists who did have plans. I'm not sure how those plans went because you can't find much more about them anymore. They originally planned to resurrect this woolly mammoth by 2019. Obviously, that didn't happen. And most of the idea behind this de-extinction, as you say, is that you introduce a, a DNA, you, you introduce DNA cells from a, a relative, from a modern day relative to replace that degrading DNA of the extinct animal. I was looking at this de-extinction thing and I can't quite get myself behind it. I, I think the only purpose it could serve is to be an interesting study into how these organisms uh, looked, how they functioned, you know, to eventually have it grow up and then maybe dissect it to see what the insides looked like. But, you know, um, I know they mentioned something in this article, like these woolly mammoths played an important part in their ecosystem back then, knocking down trees so that, you know, the ground could stay cold, which helped the grass in the spring or something, you know, but, you know, th this is the whole idea of invasive species. And they did this in Florida with pythons you know alligators were getting to be a problem they got they brought down pythons to eat the alligators and now they have a python problem you right. know like i i feel like introducing new species doesn't usually go well yeah most of the time with plans like this it does tend to be a case of the best laid plans as you say there are always secondary things that we do not consider uh, i was surprised when i was reading about the, this woolly mammoth thing was that woolly mammoths the last woolly mammoth on earth was alive only four thousand years ago did you know that uh, th that seems kind of recent yeah while most of the mammoths died out between like fourteen thousand and ten thousand years ago um many of them including this particular one who they've named yucca don't know why but whatever um belonged to this very resilient population of the species that lived uh, in the Arctic Ocean on an island called Wrangell Island until 4,000 years ago, which, yeah, as it said, you know, when it comes to extinction and species is like the day before yesterday. I know the article mentions about a an extinct 12,000 year old lion species considered for de-extinction as well, you know, and I, I don't know, you know, I, I think it is really cool to, to go through maybe the scientific processes to see if it's possible. I think learning how to do this with Another creature here could maybe uh, show a lot of potential for, you know, living things now, you know, for people in hospitals. But, you know, as far as 
as far as bringing him back, or to at least bring back an entire species so that it's no longer extinct, to me, it feels like we could probably be better using our resources elsewhere. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, a lot of people ask the question about dinosaurs, obviously, because of Jurassic Park, but dinosaurs are are not really a candidate for this, for de-extinction, because DNA from dinosaurs is from way too far ago than we could potentially resurrect in any possible way whatsoever. Uh, they forgot to mention that in the film, but whatever. So the main uh, <laughs> candidates for this kind of de-extinction, sort of the top of the list are like the dodo, uh, the mammoth, the woolly rhinoceros, the passenger pigeon, the gastric brooding frog, uh, interesting term, the <laughs> Pyrenean ibex, the Carolina parakeet, and as you said, the Tasmanian tiger. They actually, I, I think as you mentioned, they found uh, a very, very well-preserved uh, extinct cave lion. I think it was in Russia or, or Siberia that uh, they were thinking about doing exactly the same thing to. Has to be somewhere cold where they found it. I mean... <laughs> oh, that's the thing, right? I mean, is that you have so many of these places on Earth, like especially in Siberia, in the Arctic, where, where there is so much just stored there because there's no one there. It's not like we are going there and living there and exploring there. There's so much unexplored land that we're going to find good things and we're going to find bad things going on for quite some time. And didn't the dodo birds go extinct just because they were so dumb? Like, I heard you could, these were birds that, like, you know, the new settlers come to America and stuff, and they see these birds, and the birds don't even act intimidated. It's not like they fly away when you come close to them. I think they said they got close enough to, like, touch them, to capture them, and eat them, and the birds would just stand there and take it. Can I be your friend? Like, this, this isn't a species that's going to last if we bring it back. You know, uh, I, I don't know. And that will do it for this week's episode. Brian, thank you so much. Tell us about the TV Trivia Podcast. Hey, so uh, yeah, I'm the host of TV Trivia Podcast. First, thank you for having me. This was a blast. No problem at all. So what, what do you do on your show? Uh, so I ask questions about TV trivia. So I have uh, guests come on and I just ask them questions from the show. You know, nothing like uh, nothing too much behind the scenes stuff as much as far as things that happen in the show, like Office fans. I, I just did a couple on The Office. So questions would be like, when Jim imitates Dwight, what are the three Bs he says? See, my if my daughter were awake, she would know that and she could actually help me out because she's seen it 27,000 times. Well, but uh, I do not know that. What, what what are they? Just so I know, there's probably, I'm sure there's a listener going, I know, I know. Oh, I, I should hope anybody who's seen The Office does know. Uh, Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. I gotta go back. I only watched the first like four seasons. I think I have to finish that thing off because I was enjoying it. And uh, do you have any socials where people can find you? Yeah, sure. So uh, TV Trivia Pod, it's, uh, I'm at TV Trivia Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you should be able to find me on all the uh, podcast apps. And if you uh, find any of these socials as well, if you click the link, there's an area for you to submit your own questions as well. So if you think there's just something that I have to ask, feel free to submit a question and I'd love to put it on the show. Do a whole episode on the Betty White show. <laughs> Is that even available to stream anywhere? <laughs> it's not, but as I said, you can still find it on YouTube. So who was Betty White's first guest on the 1954 Betty White show? <laughs> if anybody knows that, that like we just did a podcast. I don't even know the answer to that. Nope. Nope. <laughs> thanks for being on the show. Brian. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, what's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? something else we want it email us at three interesting things at gmail.com 
follow our Instagram at three, that's the number three interesting things, or tweet it to us at three interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you next week.